Welcome to the Doxology Podcast. My name is Jens Nelson. My name is Lucas Stock. And this is the spookiest podcast you're ever going to encounter because we are dedicated to journeying together on the road that is the Christian faith. Thank you for joining us as we discuss and investigate theology and the Christian life, striving for unity amongst our diversity as members of Christ's church. Welcome to uh, what will probably be the final spooky episode, hint, hint, of Spooktacular Month 2023. Uh, If you're new here, if this is your first episode, um, every October, Lucas and I do uh, a little thing we like to call Heresy Month, where we discuss a a heresy from church history, whether ancient or modern. Uh, We look at the ins, the outs, where it might be problematic, where it's maybe showing up today if it's an ancient heresy. Um, if you've been around for a while, you know what this is all about, so you don't really need this introduction. So, uh, without any further ado, let's just jump into it. This week, we are talking about oneness Pentecostalism. Um, it's a it's a teaching that is more or less approximately a hundred years old. Um, it's it's not very it's not very old. Um, so, Lucas, what do you want to say at the outset? What uh, what stood out to you about oneness Pentecostals? Um, how is their teaching errant? And uh, let's just roll from there. Yeah, so I, I've known or, or at least been aware of the existence of something called oneness Pentecostalism for, I don't know, a while. I don't remember where I first first encountered it um, in, in writing or talking to somebody. I don't remember. But um, yeah, like you say, it's 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 not old because I mean that part comes from the Pentecostalism part. I mean, Pentecostalism in general is not, is not very old uh, in the grand scheme of human history, but oneness Pentecostalism is not, you know, the same thing as just any other person who is a Pentecostal. So um, obviously neither of us would necessarily, um, or, or I should say both of us would have, quite a few things that are distinctive to Pentecostalism that we would uh, maybe have disagreements or nuances or differences with. We've, we've talked about that before. Um, but none of those have anything to do with why we're talking about a, this particular uh, sub-branch of Pentecostalism. Uh, the, the reason they made it into this month uh, is the oneness part. And so I didn't know, despite knowing about the, the basic, you know, definition of oneness Pentecostalism and the fact that there was such a thing, um, I wasn't familiar with any details on like uh, particular churches or communions or statistics that had to do with them. Um, so I, that was the, one of the first things I looked for was I just wanted to, to get, I, I didn't really dive too deep into the, the specifics of the history in terms of like, um, obviously, you know, coming out of the Pentecostal revivals in the beginning of the 20th century, but like who split with who and why and who first taught that. I didn't get really into that at all because, um, not because it's not important, but just because I was more focused on the sort of, um, you know, explanation for the oneness doctrine. Um, that's what I was most interested in. Um, so uh, if if I, I don't know, but if you did a little more of that sort of nitty gritty history stuff, we can um, turn that over to, to to you to cover that. But first, I did want to mention just um, what I believe, um, according to some basic googling, um, what I believe is the largest oneness Pentecostal denomination in the world is the um, United Pentecostal Church International. Um, whether or not they are actually the the largest, uh, I, I I may be wrong about. But on their website, the the United Pentecostal Church International, the UPCI, claims globally forty three thousand churches and five point six million members. So certainly not a not a small body. Um, I mean, much smaller than than other Christian bodies, but um, not some kind of fringe thing where you've got you know. A couple churches that are um, off doing their own thing somewhere where they don't really interact with anybody. Um, the the UPCI is just 
a denomination of oneness Pentecostalism. So we're not talking about the entire movement, um, and we're still up in that in in the in the the status of millions of members worldwide. And I think I forget. Um, like in the United States or in, or I forget if they, if they said U.S. or North America, I think 11,000, 11 or 12,000 um, of those 43,000 churches are in North America. So um, very much like a lot of Pentecostalism, very much a, a global um, body, but, but not by any means uh, small here in North America either. 11,000 churches is still, still quite a bit, quite a bit. Um, and... Uh, another number that I, I didn't write down the exact number, it's it's close to the same as the church number. It's right around 42, 43, 44,000 um, is globally the number of uh, cred- licensed, credentialed, ordained ministers, um, which in a, in a lot of ways, I'm no, I'm no like soci- sociologist or, uh, you know, anything like that. So I, I don't know the, the ins and outs of this, but to me... Um, the number of ordained clergy, uh, especially active clergy, um, who are who are still involved in uh, church or parish or congregational ministry in some way, um, is probably in some ways maybe an e- even a better sort of number to go to than like number of churches, um, in to, to see, uh, you know. The, the sort of vitality or, or how, you know, how vigorous is, is the body? Because maybe there's, you know, millions of people, but like, you know, for the last couple decades, the number of, of clergy has been just declining because nobody's still entering into the ministry and it's just a matter of years until churches start close. You know, that, that happens with, with communions or denominations that are dying so so the fact you know there's there's about the same amount of clergy as churches just kind of goes to show that that um seemingly at least based on the numbers that they're self-reporting on their website seemingly um this particular denomination is is pretty pretty doing pretty well you know and i think they had like a banner that said something about like uh 2022 special giving you know somewhere in the range of 20 plus million dollars so you know um definitely uh a living example of this thing oneness pentecostalism that for those outside of um oneness circles especially and outside of um some pentecostal circles maybe something that is sort of uh new to a lot of people listening just because it is um well (laughs) As we'll see, you know, beyond the Pentecostalism, it's got some pretty distinctive characteristics that set it apart from from other Christian groups. So, um, as far as sort of a, a, a broad introduction, I don't know if you want to add anything, yeah, um, more specific historically, or just to just anything else about sort of the status of oneness Pentecostalism today. Before we get into the the details of what exactly oneness is. For sure. Yeah, there were a few things I wanted to say here. Um, I think you you sort of alluded to this. You sort of mentioned that even just Pentecostalism more broadly, um, you know, has been around a little bit longer. Uh, the the first Pentecostals were, were what, what we call holiness Pentecostals, and they essentially teach three works of grace. So there's new birth, entire sanctification, and then spirit baptism accompanied by glossolalia. Um so like finished work Pentecostals broke off and became partitioned into Trinitarian and non-Trinitarian branches, uh, the, the latter being known as what we are talking about today, oneness Pentecostalism. And so this uh, like oneness Pentecostalism as a movement began in approximately 1913. So again, only about 100 years ago, um, as a result of doctrinal disputes within Pentecostalism more broadly. Um, and interestingly, specifically within the Assemblies of God denomination, which, as we've said on on air a couple of times now, I sort of have like experience with. Um, so within oneness Pentecostalism, scholars sort of differ on their view of like church history. Um, some some such and I'm just going to name a couple of people. I don't know these people. I don't know their works exhaustively at all. Um, but Dr. Curtis Ward, Marvin Arnold, and William uh, Calfant, 
Um, they hold to a, a successionist view, arguing that their movement has existed in every generation from the original day of Pentecost to the present day. Um, Ward, in particular, proposed a theory of an unbroken Pentecostal church lineage, claiming to have chronologically traced its perpetuity throughout all of church history, whereas others hold to a restorationist view, believing that while the apostles and their church clearly taught oneness doctrine in the Pentecostal experience, the early apostolic church went into apostasy and ultimately uh, evolved into the Roman Catholic Church. So for them, the contemporary oneness Pentecostal movement came into existence in America in the early 20th century during the, um, sort of during the time of the Azusa Street Revival, which again, something we've discussed on air. Um, and so a couple of these guys, so Bernard and Norris, deny any direct link between the Church of the Apostolic Age and the current oneness movement, believing that modern oneness Pentecostalism is a total restoration originating from a step-by-step -step separation within Protestantism, um, culminating in the final restoration of the early apostolic church. So that was all sort of a mouthful. I was more or less reading that, but like, it's interesting to give that backstory to give that, um, even because like, again, these are real people. <laughs> oneness Pentecostals are like people that live. I, I'm sure maybe you even know some, whether you know they're oneness Pentecostal or not, but these are people that live today you know, all around the world, um, but they, they live in our towns, in our communities, you maybe even work with them, whatever. And so like, these are people that like, have a belief system, just like you and I have a belief system. Um, and so to see them talk about their church, their movement, and its involvement in the broader Christian church's history is really fascinating to sort of see those differences, even within oneness Pentecostalism, you know, those that claim we can trace our lineage all the way back to the apostles and those that more or less say it's like a, a new thing today, but it's it's trying to get back to the roots, so to speak. So um, I, I, I'm realizing now, too, we didn't like totally give like a definition of this idea of oneness Pentecostalism. I, I obviously just mentioned the history. So I'll just say a couple other things and then kick it to you. But um, you, if you haven't heard of oneness Pentecostalism, it's also known as apostolic Pentecostalism, um, Jesus name Pentecostalism or the Jesus only movement. Um, the reason the reason we're talking about it today is because they are a non-Trinitarian movement within Protestant Christian Pentecostalism more broadly. Um, it, it derives the name, so oneness, Pentecostalism, it, it derives its name from its teaching on the Godhead. It's basically a form of modalistic, um, or sorry, modalistic teaching. It, it basically says like, there's one God, a singular divine spirit with no distinction of persons. And that God manifests himself in many ways, including father, including son, including Holy Spirit. Um, and so that's what separates oneness Pentecostals, I think, in, in large part from other Pentecostals and thus other Protestants more broadly. Um, but but their, um, th their beliefs even in, within the realm of soteriology, um, they they believe that true saving faith is demonstrated by repentance, full submersion, water baptism, and baptism in the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. So again, those those things further differentiate themselves from other Protestants. So uh, perhaps now is a good time, Lucas, to sort of get into the nitty gritty of like their theology. Obviously, we're we're within our heresy month. Um, we're within our bad teaching month. And I think given some of what I've already said about their oneness, their, their belief in God being one, not triune, um, they, they've, been, they've been accused of modalism. They've been accused of Arianism or at least semi-Arianism, um, which as we've said before on air, because we've had episodes about those teachings, like is a problem. Um, are, were there other things in their theology or did you want to touch on any of that uh, going forward here? Yeah, I mean, I just, I, what I wanted to do was kind of uh, find, and I found a, a YouTube uh, interview with um, a, with, I think you, in passing, referenced both of these people, Dr. David Bernard, who is uh, currently the, the general superintendent of the United Pentecostal Church International, and then Dr. David Norris, who is a professor of theology at the uh, UPCI seminary, Ursham graduate school of theology. 
So uh, I was like, oh, this is this is this is a great source. These are these are leaders. Um, at least one of them is actively engaged in scholarship and and teach theological education and training um, within this broader oneness movement. This is a great source, and so I I um, took down a couple quotes from this YouTube video. It's linked on their website. Um, to from them to to let them in their own words describe the one the doctrine of the oneness of God, um, which essentially is um, modalism. It's not um, it's it's it, as we'll see. It's not Arian. Um, I should say you know it's not even Arian. <laughs> um, it's sort of it's sort of uh, would be it would be a little bit of a stretch I think to categorize it as. Um, uh, as as Arianism, or just I mean that was kind of an overly polite way of saying it, it would be flat out wrong to call it Arian because um, it's 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 well we'll we'll see why we'll see why so so Dr. David Bernard who is like I said the general superintendent of the 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 or one of the largest oneness dominations in the world um, described the oneness uh, doctrine as having sort of two main points. Um, Quote, we believe, so, sorry, end quote. <laughs> this, is, uh, this is the first of the two main points. Quote, we believe there is one God with no distinction of person. He is indivisible in his nature and substance. That is based on Deuteronomy 6.4. And as a reminder, Deuteronomy 6.4 says the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Um and then the the second uh, point that Dr. David Bernard uh, describes as sort of key to understanding the oneness doctrine is quote Jesus of Nazareth is the one true God manifested in the flesh. He is the one God incarnate or the human personification of God. End quote. And then he um, points to Colossians two nine in support of that. Uh, point uh, where Paul writes that the fullness of divinity, the fullness of God's deity, dwells bodily in Christ. Um, and uh, so for that reason, I say um, they're not Arian, they are modalist uh, because um, they have no distinction of persons. They don't have multiple persons in God where one is superior and one is inferior, like like a, of Arianisms of various stripes. Um, but what they actually have is the one indivisible uh, divine being expressing himself in uh, three different manifestations, three different persons. Three di- the, the persons of the so-called Trinity are actually different ways that God reveals or manifests or shows himself throughout scripture and throughout the church. Um, but it's all the same, again, indivisible in nature and substance, God who has no distinction of persons. Um, and then Dr. David Norris, who's, who's the professor of theology that was, that was in this uh, video I was watching, uh, he relates a story where basically Somebody like said, oh, I heard that you don't believe in the Trinity. And then this is his response. Uh, Quote, well, I certainly believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as it's defined in the Bible. But much of the language of the Trinity didn't come from the Bible. It actually came from certain church councils and was very much influenced by philosophy. End quote. And so that quote especially um, points to some of my... Um, deeper critiques beyond just, you know, my issue with modalism just on the face of it in general, um, you know, that's sort of an abstract thing, an abstract way of describing um, the nature of God and um, how it is that Father, Son, and Spirit are all God. Um, but first, I do just want to like hammer home that um they like they will not use the word modalism as far as I in any of the writings that I saw, which which it's not like I am an expert on this, but um, the oneness uh, adherents wouldn't use that word, which makes sense because that's a you know a word that has been developed within 
Trinitarian discussions to apply to those who are being um, described as, as heretical groups for their understanding of God. Um, but if you just listen to the way that they describe Father, Son, and Spirit, um, it, it, it is um, like sort of mundane modalist. It, it's, it's these three different expressions, these three different uh, manifestations is a word I've heard a few times um, of the one God and uh, that one God is the same God putting on different masks, putting on different um, different you know ways of being to to do different works throughout throughout the history of, of, of redemption and stuff. Um, so, the other thing that that immediately leads me to sort of posit um, or to sort of claim, I guess, not really to posit, um, is that as non-Trinitarians, you know, self-described non-Trinitarians, whose views fit very nicely with previously condemned ancient alternatives to Trinitarian um, theology proper, the, a Trinitarian view of God, I mean, um, they are sort of definitionally uh, not within the fold of the church. Um, and obviously, that's something that would be immediately rejected by um, oneness Pentecostals themselves. They would see themselves as restoring uh, the, the true teaching of the apostles. Um, but... Um, I will say, um, with I, despite the fact that there are millions of people who are, uh, you know, living out their faith in the context of this, uh, these uh, the church bodies that follow this doctrine, um, I, I, you know, for the sake of <laughs> for the sake of conscience and the truth, I think um, very like unambiguously. And clearly, I'm, 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 I mean, I'm not comfortable, but I'm comfortable um, declaring, claiming that uh, if you teach this, you are, you are teaching falsehood. You are actively leading souls away from Christ because you are, what, who you are presenting is a false Christ. Um, and I think it's worth being as harsh as that, um, not out of some sort of, you know, theological chauvinism or uh, triumphalism or hatred, of, of by certainly not, but more out of just a recognition like it's actually that big a deal and this is current, right? We've, we've done this before where we've had a few October episodes where we're looking like sort of deep in the annals of history and then we get to an episode where you're talking about something um, like the... Church of Latter-day Saints, where you've got millions and millions of people actively involved in uh, teaching uh, doctrines that don't hold up to um, the standard of Scripture at all. Um, and that that does heighten the stakes, I think, or raise the stakes. Um, and makes, makes it a little bit more of a... Um, a little bit more significant to be very clear that in this case oneness doctrine of God is a false doctrine um, and, and I'll get I have more to say on that um, with respect to um, just biblical interpretation um, but before we get there um, thoughts yeah contributions, things I missed, that kind of stuff. Sure. What I think is really interesting about this particular, if we want to call it a denomination or this particular group of people, um, the, the, the people who are, who are theologians, who are academic, who are scholars within this movement, um, they, like they have a care for church history, um, which at least in most circles that I've run in, like the common person, obviously you and I are a little bit of an exception. I think most of the time we're maybe a little bit of outliers. I think the people that listen to our podcast are probably also outliers in their churches and in their denominations because you're, 
your average churchgoer, your person who is just in a pew or in a chair, like when I've had conversations with them, it's not that, I don't want to say that they don't care about church history. I just think they're not well informed and thus like don't have necessarily an interest, or maybe it's just a little bit too nitty gritty or um, the details are sort of disconnected or disjointed from their, their life today. So like why study church history? Um, but like the the adherence of oneness Pentecostalism, like they they care about the early church, like they care about tracing their lineage back. And maybe that's motivated by some sort of like, see, I can root this in something, even though it like is contrary to most of mainstream Protestantism. Look at what I can connect this to. And what I mean by that is like some of these people that we've mentioned, like Bernard, um, uh, and, and others like they're they're trying to to go back to like converted Jews of the apostolic age. Um, they're they're reading people like Clement of Rome, Polycarp, Ignatius, um, Irenaeus, even uh, to more or less say that they were oneness, um, or at least a follower of what they would call the economic Trinity. Um, and so, like, I, I find that really fascinating. I find that really interesting that they that they're that they're trying at the very least to to root their teaching in history. Um, which I think, again, personally speaking, when I think of something like Latter-day Saint um, or um, whatever, like they're not necessarily as rooted in history or at least not early church history. They're more rooted in like, look what Joseph Smith did 200 years ago type of history. Um, One thing, if I can just sort of push back a little bit. Sure, please. Is is like the the whole, like all the, all the restorationist movements. The ones that are a little more dramatically different, like Latter-day Saints and and um, Joseph Smith and his followers, but also the ones that are that are less like you know visibly separate from the rest of, of Protestantism, like Disciples of Christ slash Churches of Christ. Um, I'm like those sorts of the Free Church, you know, Restorationist movement following the Second Great Awakening, 19th century, like Middle America type. Um, movements um, in like the uh, Campbell camp revivals and those sorts of things like like a hallmark of restorationist you know broadly conceived theology or, or, or you know a theology of church history is this idea of a great apostasy and it's and it's and it's it's very explicit you know like I had dinner with a couple of Latter-day Saints missionaries over the summer they gave me a pamphlet to read and um, it, you know, it's, it's like, what is the the gospel or whatever was the pamphlet. It's very like basic introductory stuff. And there's a whole section on the great apostasy when after the apostles died, uh, traditions of men came in and polluted doctrine and the church fell away until it was restored. Um, and, and, and that's that, like I say, something like Latter-day Saints is, uh, be, and I think this is because the the doctrines that they are claiming are uh, biblical apostolic doctrines are so different than uh, post apostolic Christianity um, and, and church history that you you, you kind of have to say like something went wrong because you just you just don't find that kind of stuff in you know the the conciliar era the medieval era. Um, and, and I think there's something very similar going on with oneness, Pentecostalism, where Pentecostalism in general, um, not universally, but 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 there's in my experience reading uh, reading and listening to Pentecostals speak on this sort of thing, like there, there's sort of a, a, a general restorationism kind of going on, which I think is just sort of part and parcel of like it's sort of intrinsic or, or uh, implicit. In the idea of um, this new work of the spirit happening, you know, it doesn't matter how many years, but happening later, you know, something like Azusa Street or or, or whatever, where, where there's this new movement that the spirit is doing in the church, like that kind of implicitly carries with it a little bit of restorationism, even if it's sort of like a diet restorationism, maybe. Um, but obviously, if you're just going to say, we don't believe in the Trinity, and the apostles also did not teach the Trinity. You 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 kind of have to take a recourse to some kind of uh, great apostasy or you know medium apostasy. There has to be something where because 
whether you like it or not and whether you believe in it or not and whether you think it's important or not, you know, if you spend any amount of time reading early church figures, you know, the apostolic fathers, the the conciliar era, the medieval church, the reformers, it really doesn't matter where you go. Um, you're going to hit Trinitarianism in the first 10 minutes if you're if you're reading honestly. And, you know, events like, you know, Michael Servetus being burned at the stake because he denied the Trinity shows that historically Trinitarianism won the day. And again, you don't have to you don't have to say that that's good if, if you if you choose, you know, if, if you choose to reject the, the, the truth of who God is because you think it's a perversion, that's fine. But you do inevitably run into this problem of, oh, I'm trying to, um, I'm I'm trying to to maintain biblical and apostolic Christianity and be faithful to the church that Jesus founded, um, but it seems like the vast, vast, vast majority going all the way back to the first generation after the apostles, at the absolute latest. Uh, took on this trinitarianism what do i do with that so i think i think part of it kind of comes with the territory of of being like you you need to be able to produce these um interpretations not only of scripture but of that immediate generation of christians um it's it's a similar thing with with other views as well you know people who would say like oh uh you know uh, bishops or the real presence in the Eucharist or, you know, things like that are, um, are just later non, you know, like sort of, sort of human traditions that crept in over time. That's not what the Bible teaches. Okay. Well then why is it that almost immediately we see the rise of the episcopacy? We see, um, you know, the accusations of cannibal, you know, they're, they're always sort of like, general historical questions where it's like you you start to um even if you, you you can't necessarily you know it's not like we can take a TARDIS back there and prove you know like ask the people who were there in 98 AD what they thought but there is a little bit of like an Occam's razor thing where it's like okay do you do do we believe that you know there was this secret trail of blood of Pentecostalism that were non-Trinitarians that stretches all the way back, you know, that seems very untenable and then slightly less untenable, but still not very historically tenable is the apostles taught oneness and it was lost almost immediately until it was sort of recovered. Um, so that, that would be, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on that where it's just like, yeah, there's a concern to put forward a reading of church history, um, but it seems to me that intrinsic in any flavor of restorationism is sort of there's this demand that you do that, but it becomes very hard to do that in a way that I find at all compelling in light of the data that I've seen, right? Sure. The, the church fathers I've read. The, the, the historical accounts, the archaeological accounts that I've seen, like it seems very difficult to maintain that kind of a position. Um, because, and, and ultimately, my, the reason I would say that that's the case is because ultimately it's, it, it isn't actually a historical position that, you know, mainstream Christians were non-Trinitarians. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if you have more thoughts, thoughts no, I, on that, that kind of that observation or reflection that, that came to mind. I don't know. No, that's, that's good and helpful. And I think that actually helped further maybe make the point that I was trying to make that like, despite the best efforts to be historically rooted, like they still prove themselves to not be as clearly rooted as they might otherwise want to be. I don't know how to say that differently, but it's like when you start getting into the nitty gritty of like their theology, you start to see how they are just vastly different despite any ties they try to make to church history. I mean, according to oneness theology, the son of God, you know, Jesus did not exist or at least in any substantial sense 
prior to the incarnation of Jesus of Nazareth, except as the Logos or word of God the Father. So they believed that the humanity of Jesus did not exist before the incarnation, um, although Jesus, or as they might say, the spirit of Jesus pre-existed in his deity as the eternal God. So this belief is supported by the lack of Jesus's incarnate presence anywhere in the Old Testament, they say. Um, they, they go on to say that, like, uh, think of John 1, 1, where in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Um, so they, they would say that this is this word was the mind or the plan of God. Um, they believe that the word was not a separate person, but that it was, again, God himself and trying to make that clear, that oneness. So for us as Trinitarians, as people who um, who perhaps do see Jesus incarnate uh, in the Old Testament, maybe that's a different conversation for another day, but we could talk about the Spirit being distinct from the Father. We can talk about um, Jesus or what it even meant for Jesus as he was human on earth to be praying to the Father or to be talking about the coming of the Spirit. Um, they are they, the the oneness Pentecostals are going to do what they can theologically to to show that those aren't separate or distinct, but it's again modal. It's God representing Himself in different ways, um, and so you might wonder, like, well, if if that's how if that's how a oneness Pentecostal like uses Scripture, maybe they don't have a high view of Scripture. Well, um, they actually do view the Bible as the inspired word of God. They think it's absolutely inerrant in its contents, though not necessarily in translation. Um, but they they specifically reject the conclusions of church councils, such as Nicaea. Um, think of like the Nicene Creed that we talk about. Uh, they more or less believe that mainstream, Christ, mainstream Christians have been misled by long-held and unchallenged quote, traditions of men, end quote, which I think is what you referenced earlier. And maybe that's a, like, like you also alluded to, like a, a major underlying theme of restorationist movements, perhaps like that's just like part and parcel of what a restorationist movement is, is this idea that like most people have been misled by these long held and unchallenged traditions. So let me break your wall and tell you how it really is. Um, I don't know. Kind of interesting. I think the the yeah. last couple of uh, thoughts that I had it, it it more or less like pertained to their like. Let's say you're a common person who finds yourself in a oneness Pentecostal church. Like, how do you differ, perhaps, from other Pentecostals or maybe even from other Protestants? Um, so, speaking of their 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 holiness or their practice, like think of Christian faith and practice. Like, how is it lived out on a day to day basis? Like, obviously, we can talk about the ethereal and the theological, and that that stuff might be kind of different from like the boots on the ground, day in day out, oneness Pentecostal life. Um, so they they teach again that salvation is gained initially. Um, by the preceding ingredients, um, basically it, it's it's maintained by daily adherence to um, codes of conduct, personal behavior. So, for example, alcohol and tobacco are prohibited. Women are not allowed, are not allowed to cut their hair, wear short dresses or slacks, use makeup, wear jewelry. Men are expected to dress conservatively, so like white shirts, dark slacks. They must be clean shaven and have short haircuts. Violations of these codes may result in not only a loss of salvation, but exclusion from church fellowship. Um, this, I think you and I wanted to have a, a conversation on this at some point. We never did. But some small oneness groups also practice uh, snake handling and drinking poison to demonstrate their faith and holiness based on Mark 16, 18 in the King James Version. Um, which I find a little bit interesting as well. So did you have any thoughts on that? Any other any other points of either pushback or, or clarification? <clears throat> yeah, no, just the, the only other thing that I want to say is 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 this like the lesson that to draw is you cannot read the Bible apart from the community of faith. You can't understand scripture apart from the body of Christ, aka the church. And when you do, you don't know how to read it because at the end of the day, they're pretty, they're pretty much, they're just Pentecostals coming out of that holiness movement. It, it, they, they, they're more or less indistinguishable in terms of, in terms of their, um, the rest of their theology, except 
they deny the Trinity supposedly on the basis of Scripture. But if you look, if you read, a, it didn't take me long. If you read their interpret their exegesis of these supposedly mishandled Trinitarian texts, John one one, um, as as a, a great example, um, it's it's really bad. It's it's just bad interpretation, bad hermeneutics, bad exegesis. For just a, a small example, and this is this is it's on Wikipedia, their Wikipedia article, full full disclosure, but it's a quote from Dr. Bernard's book, The Oneness of God. <clears throat> In that book, he says that Jesus, quote, is both spirit and flesh, God and man, father and son. On his human side, he is the son of man. On his divine side, he is the son of God and is the father dwelling in the flesh, end quote. If you, if you listen carefully, there's a huge confusion of categories. He's talking about um, the fact that Jesus has two natures, spirit and flesh. That's kind of a funky way of speaking. I mean, we all have both spirit and flesh. God and man, we could say divine nature, human nature. But then he brings in father and son. He's no longer using the category of natures. He's talking about persons now. So there's this complete crossing of wires. On his human side, he is the son of man. Okay. On his divine side, he is the son of God and is the father. That's a completely incoherent statement, right? Like, like now this is, this is one quote from the book. I haven't read the whole book. I understand, you know, fine. But where does that kind of wire crossing category mistake come from it's it's poor handling of of the scriptures and i read um i forgot the website link uh maybe i can find it and we can put it in the show notes if 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 i remember to but um a a brief little like blog post sort of uh giving a a brief interpretation of john 1 1 and explaining why it does not uh, it does not present a Trinitarian view of the relationship between the Father and the Son, or, or God and the Word, um, and and it was it was it was just completely unconvincing because um, he said, you know, the Word is is the, as as this mind or plan of God. Um, you know, there's no use. You know, it doesn't say Son. It doesn't. It doesn't use a personal name. Um, you know, the word that God speaks in the Old Testament isn't, you know, portrayed as a separate person from him. Again, you know, we might quibble with that, but fine. But reading the interpretation, it, you know, it put forward all these reasons why the word was God and the word was with God does not mean, you know, that we're talking about a distinction in persons that are united in essence. Um, but it didn't do anything to deal with the fact that there's still a, whatever you want to say it means, there's still a distinction within God being made in John 1, 1. And you, you have to actually give an account of that. The word was God and the word was with God. That's a distinction. And and this particular author did nothing to to, to deal with that. And um, regardless, that is there. Even if you even if you want to say classical Trinitarianism goes awry, that's one example of here's a biblical reason why it's wrong, and it's just kind of a um, sloppy mishandling of a not simple but at least a fairly straightforward text the word was with god and the word was god and then to to read that sentence and come away with the conclusion not just the conclusion and this is my point not just the conclusion that this is not a trinitarian text but that there's actually no distinction being made in God. Well, if the word was God, how is that his plan? 
and the word was with God. Okay, fine. It doesn't say son, but whatever we want to say this word is, it's something that is and is with God. That's that's a distinction within God, you know. And and so yes, I'm being a little bit sort of quick and um, glib, you know, in terms of uh, taking one interpretation and just sort of dismissing it. I, I fully aware of that, but that's just what I wanted to bring forward as an ex- as a couple of brief examples of. It's no wonder that they've got a completely whack view of the doctrine of God and their and, and their relation to church history because they partially it's a little bit of a feedback loop that relation to church history comes out of a movement which rejects the consensus of the church in interpreting scripture um, teaching theology living out the Christian faith and as a result, the guardrails that were built up for that for almost 2,000 years are taken away. And once again, I'll say, today, 2023, Doxology Podcast, October Heresy Month, episode on Oneness Pentecostalism. Of all the things that we've talked about and could have talked about, and all the lessons that could be learned uh, from a, for, for us as... Trinitarians seeking to be Orthodox Christians uh, in a more mainstream Protestant expression of the faith. The lesson that I want to to bring out and and to internalize better is um, not to try to read the scriptures in isolation because when you do that, you fall into really dangerous territory because you've taken off the guardrails. So, that's kind of where I wanted to end it and what I was led to in this little, um, this, this brief little dive into the world of oneness, um, yeah. Pentecostalism. So, yeah. No, that's good. I don't have much more to say, but like on that final point, like I totally agree about not reading scripture in isolation. And I do wonder, and maybe this is a, whole, uh, an, a, a conversation for an entirely different day. Like maybe we need to have like restorationist movements 101 or something, but I almost wonder if like someone within a restorationist movement would say, we're not reading scripture in isolation. We're reading it with the early church and you guys have been reading it in isolation, disjointed from, uh, you know, cause you've been deceived by the teachings of men or something like, again, I'm, I'm just thinking if I'm going to have a conversation with somebody who might be in this movement or a restorationist movement in particular, like if that would be how the conversation would go. So I'm, I don't know, again, maybe a yeah, conversation I mean, for another day. Probably, but but real quick, like it, imagining a scenario where that kind of conversation is is being had. Like, um, I, I I think the the best way that I would want to sort of probe into that is not to try to like, you know, see who can play the most church history cards the best, right. and, and and convince one or the other that they are or are not connected to church history. But what I would want to just be is like, okay, fine. Can you provide an actually um, coherent and convincing reading of a verse, you know, John 1, 1 being an example? Um, but, you know, can, can you provide, you know, just any, any of, the tr- of, of the especially Trinitarian passages of Scripture, can you actually give me an interpretation that deals with the apparent Trinitarianness? Um, and explain why that's not the right view. Um, and, you know, I understand that I'm saying this because I'm a Trinitarian, but uh, I'm a Trinitarian because that's what Scripture says. Right. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I'm not, con- I, you know, but, but, but the, the, the con- your point is, is, is well taken that that is a bigger, um, a bigger point of discussion, right? A bigger, um, a bigger question to answer for, those who are in restorationist movements and those who are not, who are interacting with those traditions or engaging with them, um, you know, oneness or, or otherwise. Right. Um, so that, that's, there, there's much, there's much to think about with, with, with respect to that point that you bring up for sure. Yeah. And I don't want to like make it seem like I'm trying to sympathize with oneness Pentecostals. I'm just trying to think through like, if I was engaging with a person in this, like how I would have like, 
at the very least, a charitable conversation and like work through the nitty gritty of deep, almost philosophical like theology. So like I don't yeah I don't want any of what I said to like like well I'm right. just trying no, to sympathize no. with yeah. But yeah, yeah. yeah that's all no, I that's mean, all I, I had. Think, I didn't have any any other comments. Yeah, yeah, and that I think that I think that's absolutely the the right uh, sort of question to ask. Um, and, and to try to attempt to truly understand, you know, and, and, and I don't believe, you know, I'm, I'm obviously very critical and I, and I have been rather, you know, firm in this episode, firmer than I typically am. Um, but uh, I, I truly don't believe that that comes from a place of, 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 of uh, misrepresentation, you know. Sure. Um, I'm, I'd be happy to learn from a oneness Pentecostal friend listening in. Um, if you if if you're out there, <laughs> yeah. but uh, we will we will see um, if you are that oneness Pentecostal friend listening to us. Please send in your feedback and connect with us either social media at Doxology Podcast or by email at doxologypodcast at gmail um, We would love to hear from you, not only our oneness friends, but also anybody else listening. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for continuing to tune in all these many episodes later since we began this this journey together. And uh, thank you for this heresy month. It's 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 always a blast, um, and we've got some fun some fun things coming up. Um, thinking of one thing in particular, but we'll get to that soon enough. So until next time, see ya.